Well, welcome back or welcome anew. Welcome to the Further Faster podcast. I'm Joseph McClendon III, and I'll be your host and your guide here today to do exactly what the name implies, and that is to assist you in going further, faster with your dreams, goals, and desires. And so I have a question for you. And the question is, have you ever heard people talk about that we should not care about what other people think about us? You should not be concerned about what, don't think about what others think about you. Well, on itself, it does sound like good advice, but it's just the opposite. You're designed to care about what others think about you. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you not only about why that is, but I'm going to show you how to turn that thing on its end so it actually becomes a positive thing in your life. So grab a pad and paper, and I'll be right back with the Further Faster podcast. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. I'm Joseph McClendon III, and I hope you are ready for today's subject, because this is something that is definitely going to, let's just say, fly in the face of a lot of my contemporaries. And what I mean by that is when people talk about motivation and inspiration and empowerment, I always tell them, listen, that's all great stuff, but that's temporary. And so I like to talk about things that are tangible and process to get something done. And the process I'm going to talk to you about today is helping people deal with this gnawing feeling that most of us have, and that is concerned about what other people think about us. And as I said before, my contemporaries will say, don't think about it. You shouldn't worry about that. You shouldn't care about what other people think about you. Well, I'm here to tell you that it is, it's, you are designed to be that way. As a matter of fact, it is a survival mechanism. And here's what I mean by that. When we're born, we come into this world kicking and screaming with no knowledge of this world that's getting ready to hit us right in the face, for lack of a better term. We come into this world with only two needs and one fear. And the needs are the need to avoid pain, because that one's obvious. Too much pain could result in death, and we all have this survival mechanism. And the other need is the need to grow and to learn. And the reason that need is there is because somewhere inside of us, we are, in, we are instinctively geared up to recognize that at some point as we get older, we are going to have to fend for ourselves. We are going to have to address this world, and we're going to have to survive on our own. So our creators gave us this need to grow and to learn. And that is why babies put things in their mouths and they're exploring things and they experiment and all those things. Well, those needs never go away. They may ebb and flow and go up and down, but they never go away. As a matter of fact, when people stop growing and learning, you hear about it all the time. It's science now that when people, when they stop having a purpose, when they stop growing and learning, they get sick and die. There's all kinds of studies out there that show this. The truth of the matter is, is that we all, and, and this, this need to avoid pain, that goes throughout our lives, good and bad. We do things to medicate ourselves or to numb ourselves to keep ourselves from emotional pain. And so those two things are always with us. But that third one, the other thing is the only the one fear that we have, the one fear that every human being has is the fear of being left alone. 
kind of like that that grow and learn we instinctively know that if we are left alone we will die you see human beings out of all the animals in the animal kingdom we're the one that is dependent on someone else for the longest period of time i think second only to i think it's elephants and that they're only two years human beings you cannot take care of yourself two, three, four, five years. <laughs> Some people all the way up to the 30s and 40s still need other people to depend on, that they depend on to take care of them. And because we know instinctively, and when I say instinctively, we're born with this. You know, I always say that if you look at the, the gazelle that is born on the Serengeti Plains. As soon as it comes out, it has instinct. It knows that it has to stand up or hide in the weeds, otherwise it's gonna get eaten. Birds instinctively know to fly south for the winter. We are born with things, human babies know how to swim. Most animals, all if not all animals know how to swim. But what happens is it gets, let's just say, systematically atrophied out of our system. Well, the instinct that we have amongst other things that instinct is the need to keep people around. And when they're not around, if people are not around us, we will die. As a matter of fact, if you have children, you know the difference between the cry of a child that's hungry or is, you know, needs their diaper changed or something like that, or when that child wakes up and it's all alone. It's a different cry. When they hook the babies up to an EEG machine, electroencephalograph machine that registers the, that, that, uh, registers the electricity that's going through that system, that baby's fear in that moment is the fear, the same and equal to the fear of death. And that is why all babies flirt and cry and cry out and do those things to keep people around. Babies don't like to be alone. Well, that stays with us through our life. As we grow up, we grow up, we start to recognize that, wait a minute, you know, these people that love me, these people that take care of me, these people that I love them, they need to be around me. I need them to be here. But what happens as we grow up, human beings, as we grow up, we start to recognize intellectually that, wait a minute, we don't need people around us. And there's other people are around there. And we start to put that onus on other people. The example I like to use is when you go to school. You know, we've all had the experience when you're in high school and you're in high school and there are kids that don't like you. And maybe there's some popular kids and they, 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 you're not accepted into their group or whatever. Why would you care? Why would you care? It's because that same instinct inside of you is tugging at your heart, tugging at your emotions. Now, we don't intellectualize it. We just feel like, well, why does this, why does it, why do I care so much that this person likes me or don't like me? All of this comes down to this. The number one fear of human beings, the number one fear of human beings is the fear of rejection. You know, at the Neuroencoding Institute, we teach people the, the skill of speaking. And I've had the privilege all of my career, if you will, of being in front of people. I've been in front of well over five and a half million people now, live, not to mention what I, I, I do on camera and that kind of thing. And I will be honest with you, my career started, I was a musician, and I used to have stage fright so bad, this is going to be TMI, that I would literally have to go in the bathroom and throw up. My stomach hurt everything, which is horrible. 
And it all, for me, went back to a time when I was in the ninth grade. And by the way, it was with me more than that, but it got exemplified. It got, it got, it got magnified, if you will. An incident happened to me when I was in ninth grade that I remember. And most of us have had some sort of situation like that. We had to get up and read in front of the classroom and you're all nervous and you stumbled over the words and the kids laughed at you. And we took it as being rejection and it just felt terrible. And we were afraid to get up. There are heart pounds. Our hands are sweaty. We're afraid to get up there in front of people because we may get what? Rejected. And that feeling is akin to the fear of death. Well, in my case, when I was in the ninth grade, I'm sorry, when I was in the third grade, we grew up in, my father was in the Air Force and, and we were stationed at Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii. And we came, my sister and I came into the school in the middle of the school year. And so we were brought into our classrooms by the principal. I don't know why, but he took us around to our classroom. They brought my sister off first. My sister was a year older than me. I was, what, nine years old, I guess. No, yeah, third grade, I think nine years old around there. And, uh, and then the teacher, and then the principal took me to my classroom. And when I walked in, now think about this. When I was that age, my father was in the Air Force, and in the Air Force, it was predominantly in, in that uh, particular part of the world, uh, most of the children were Asian or white. As a matter of fact, my sister and I were the only black students in that school. And this is, I'm going to date myself, back in the 60s, way before a lot of you were even born, and things were different back then. The teacher or the principal took me to the classroom, took me into the classroom, and I remembered as though it was today. The look on the teacher's face was that of disgust. And she was a young teacher, and I remember she was pretty. But I remember looking at her as she looked at me. It was absolute disgust. It was no mistaking, and I felt it in my guts. And the principal said, well, you know, this is your new student. This is Joseph. And the teacher said, all right, class, say hello to Joseph. And the class kind of was chuckling and laughing. And I'm standing in front of the classroom. And then when the principal left, she said, go to the back and sit down in a very stern voice. And I, as I was walking to the back, now those of you that are seeing me, if you're seeing this, one of the kids, as I was walking to the back of the classroom, reached out with his finger and, and, put his, and rubbed my skin and rubbed his fingers together as though the color was going to come off. And right at that moment, I realized I was different. At that moment, I realized that I was the only black student around. Before then, it really hadn't even crossed my mind, quite honestly. And when he did that, the whole classroom laughed out loud. And as I was walking back, I stopped. I didn't know what to do. I stopped. And all of a sudden, I felt a push behind me. And it was the teacher who shoved me from behind. And she shoved me as though to keep going. And I got to the, the, last, uh, the last desk at the row. And again, dating myself, that's when those old desks, they were flip-top desks. And I got back there. It was right up against the wall. And there was a student on one side of me, the desk on the other side. The teacher was there. I couldn't, I was, I was hemmed in. And she says, sit down. And I sit down. She opens my desk and she says to the classroom, all right, class, take out your songbooks. Now, in those days, for those of you that are my age, you might remember, they would have a songbook and you'd sing songs in the classroom. And she says, I want you to turn to page number, you know, 35 or whatever. And they turned and as and she has my book, she took it out of the desk and she's opening it up to the page. 
Now the other, and she waited until the other kids got there. And as they got to the page, there was a roar of laughter. The kids were just laughing out loud. Now I'm ready to cry. And she puts the book down on my, on my, uh, on my desk. And she says, class, the new boy is going to sing us a song. And she throws the book down there, and I look at the book, and the first thing that I see was there was a caricature, a cartoon of an old Negro slave with exaggerated features. He was in a straw hat, and his knees were, you know, the knees of his overalls were blown out, and he was all lanky looking and everything, and just a terrible, horrible caricature, you know, with a, with a thing of straw hanging out of his mouth. It was just awful, barefooted and just awful. And the name of the song was Old Black Joe. You can go look it up. There's a song called Old Black Joe. My name is Joseph. And so if you're ever wondering why I insist on people calling me Joseph, it's because of that. And she's, and I looked at it, and I'm, I know there was probably tears running down my face, and I wanted to run, and I was looking to get out of there. And she said, you're going to sing this song. She says, if you don't, you're going to go to the principal's office on your first day. And she made me sing that song through tears while the rest of the classroom laughed. And that's where my particular fear of rejection was amplified. Because in my brain, what I was thinking was, they must think that that is me. I'm intellectualizing it now, but at the time I'm nine years old, what do I know? And that is why, if you go back and you look at my life, why I'm always outgoing, I'm always, you know, people who know me, I'm outgoing, I'm outgoing right now. And I have, in my life, gone overboard, I know now, to convince people that that's not who I am. Now, obviously, I've worked on myself and got that behind me, but I'm using that as an example because everybody has had something. That was pretty traumatic for me. We call it a significant emotional event, but that was mine. What is yours? We've all had something like that. You may have not had something as, as dramatic as that, but all of us have had something that added to added to an already existing fear of rejection. And so that fear, that instinct that is in every single one of us is the reason why a woman will put on makeup, men will drive fancy cars. We think, if you ask people, why do you do that? It's because it makes me feel good. Well, why does it make you feel good? Well, because I like it when I do that. Well, if you boil it all down, the truth of the matter is we are concerned about what other people, we want to be accepted. We want to be, we want to be, to have our likeness, if you will, accepted by other people, consciously and unconsciously. And the truth of the matter is, it really shouldn't make a difference, but it does. And so you say to yourself, okay, well, that's there. What do I do about it? And you've been around me any length of time, you know I'm all about process. I talked about this at the very top. My contemporaries talk about motivation and, and, and having courage and being able to step up to your courage and that you should learn from your mistakes and all those things. That's great. And you need to have that stuff. But how do you get that stuff? How do you get beyond that? How do you make it so that when that fear comes up, or even if you don't know that it's there, when it's time to do something, how do you make it so that you not only don't feel that, but you feel something else? Well, I say this, telling somebody to not care about what others think or don't think about what others think. It's kind of like telling somebody, don't think about peeing when your bladder's full. It's all you can think about. That's all you can think about. And the only thing that's going to make it feel better is when you go to the bathroom and relieve yourself. That's it.
Well, for the purpose of discussion and lesson, for lack of a better term, I want you to consider that that feeling, and actually most feelings are the same way. When you're feeling bad about something, have you ever noticed that when you're feeling bad about something, you're worried about something or you're angry about something, you're upset about something, something somebody said or something you did or whatever, you can't stop thinking about it. You keep thinking about it over and over and over again. It's like if I say to you, don't think of the color red, don't think of the color bright, bright red, don't think of right, bright red, all you're going to think about is red. And the truth of the matter is, instead of trying to stop doing something, you must do these two things. Because remember, I'm all about process. And this will help you go further faster. Number one, people try to change something without doing anything about the existing emotion. Listen, fear is there. Fear of rejection is there. It's there for a warning. It's there to warn us, but not to jail us. It's there to go, hey, there may be danger around here. Or, hey, this is something that could hurt us. So, so pay attention. But that's all it's there for is to make you pay attention and, and be aware of it. Oh, this is here. But you have a choice. You've got a choice to go forward or go backwards or not do anything at all. You've got a choice. But most people allow fear to rule us and push us back and hold us back. But I'm here to tell you, there are no fearless people. But there are people who fear less. And that pause was for a reason. And I don't mean less in quantity, necessarily, I mean less in duration and frequency. And what I mean by that is, yeah, stuff comes up even in my life right now. And when it does, I don't spend a lot of time in fear. I have a mechanism that snaps me out of it. I have a mechanism that says, okay, this is what you can do about it. Oh, this isn't real. Oh, this is silly. Oh, this is what? This is that. Or... Worst case scenario, oh, this is something you need to be aware of. Don't go there. Don't do that. This is, reminds you of that. But you have the opportunity when you snap yourself out of it, which is the second thing. So, again, there are no fearless people, but there are people who fear less. They fear less in, in frequency, meaning how often they do it. And they fear less in the duration of time that they stay there. But like I said, trying to not think about something oftentimes makes you think about it more. And even if you snap yourself out of it for a little bit, it's going to come back if you don't do something. And we're going to take a break in a moment. When we come back, I am going to show you, I'm going to give you the second thing, and I'm going to give you something that you can do to not only mitigate the amount of time that you spend fearful, but also train yourself so that it becomes automatic and that you fear less. And so then when things pop up in your life, and they will, and this is universal, by the way, this is not just for fear of rejection. This is universal for anything. It's the same formula for anything. It's the same formula for any kind of pattern. And what I mean by a pattern is that if you have a fear of rejection, if you are concerned about what other people think, then here's what happens is that in that moment, your body is flooded with something called cortisol and a bunch of other nasty stuff that makes your nervous system go, stay in that sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight. And when we stay in that too long, just like any and everything else, human beings that do anything over and over again, you get better at it, the good and the bad. If you practice piano scales over and over again, you're going to get better at it. But you know what? If you practice you know, doing, doing things that are harmful to you or procrastinating or hesitating or doing anything that is harmful to you or is unresourceful, then you'll get good at that as well.
That's called getting a bad habit, either good habits or bad habits. And of course, around here, we're always, we always want to, want to encourage people to, great, to create good habits. And those good habits, just like anything else, I call it human physics. Human physics is anything that a human being does, they get better at. So if you practice doing what I'm going to tell you when we come back, you'll get better and better at it. So here's what I want you to do. Grab a sip of water, grab a glass of water or something, lubricate yourself and get ready. And I'll be right back and I'm going to talk to you about that second thing and how to not just mitigate, but also replace your, let's just say, fear of rejection with something that not only triggers you to feel better, but also makes it so that it becomes automatic. I'll be right back. You're enjoying this episode on Angel Phoenix Productions Podcast Network. To explore our complete lineup of quality programs and media production services, head on over to angelphoenix.com or like our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash angel phoenix productions. Welcome back. And as promised, I'm going to share with you that second thing about replacing that pattern or at least mitigating our fear of rejection and that concern about what others think about us. Now, before we went on the break, I shared with you that that is part of who you are, our our concern and our um, uh, our interest, for lack of a better term, about what other people think about is a built in thing. But the truth of the matter is this. When we are concerned about somebody or we're we're worried about what other people think or we're thinking about what other people might think about us, there's a presupposition there that they're thinking something bad. Now think about that. Do you ever walk into a room and go, everybody thinks I'm amazing? Most people not. If we if we go somewhere and we're concerned about it, that concern means that we are thinking that they're probably going to think this or they may be thinking that. But the truth of the matter is, most of them aren't thinking about you at all. My mom used to always say, what, what somebody thinks about you is none of your business. And how dare you think that they're even wasting their time. And as a matter of fact, most people don't like themselves <laughs> enough. And what would they be? What right do you have to think they're thinking bad of you? And I'll give you an example. When I was uh, writing my first book, my first book was called Unlimited Power of Black Choice. And I wrote it with my dear friend and my business partner for three decades now, Tony Robbins. And I wrote the book because I wanted to bring this information to the black community, because most of the time when I would go to these different types of seminars, I was the only black person there. And so I wrote this book and I wanted to bring this to them. And so as I was writing the book, I was uh, I was writing uh, about something called black rage. <laughs> In case you haven't heard about it, there are a lot of people who are upset, if you will, for lack of a better term, because of what has happened in the history, and they're carrying that around. I don't have that, and I believe that, and, and obviously I teach to get rid of those types of memories, but I don't teach theory, and I wanted to write from a place of knowing what I was talking about. So because I can take away phobias and fears, I also know how to give them. 
So I gave myself a good, healthy case of black rage. <laughs> and it was simple to do. All I had to do was wallow in what had happened in the past and, and, and put myself in that position and all those things. And pretty soon I had it going on inside and I intensified it for that reason because I wanted to write from a place of authenticity. Well, I had gone somewhere and um, I was, at the time I was living in uh, San Diego, California. And I was living in a place called Encinitas. And if you've ever been there, it's a fairly affluent area. And the place, the area that I was living in was a fairly new uh, housing development, uh, very high-end houses and everything. And to get to there, when you left the freeway, you had to go for about, oh, maybe a mile, maybe three quarters of a mile on this one main road. And there were strip malls all over the place. And there was several stoplights to get to before you got to the area where I was going to. Now, I had already been living there about two years. And I had had some incidents, if you will, where the police would pull me over and kind of like, and, and they didn't say it, but I knew. It's just like, you know, what are you doing in this area? And so, um, you know, I've been kind of used to that my, my whole life. And, you know, you just go through those things. Well, during this time that I had given myself a good, healthy case of black rage, I was, I'd left my house and I was driving and I was going to go on the freeway. I was going to go somewhere. I forget where I was going, but I was headed towards the freeway and I'm driving and I come to the first stoplight and there I'm sitting there at the stoplight and it's a nice summer day. And I hear, you know, a rumbling car pull up next to me and I actually see him in my rear view mirror first. And there's a guy in there, a white guy in there that, and it's in a, just a crappy, you know, old beat up POS. <laughs> piece of, well, you know what I'm talking about, crappy car and, uh, you know, the muffler hanging off of and everything. It's just rumbling and everything. And he's pulling up next to me really, really slow. And I look over at him and he's got a look of absolute disgust on his face. And I already told you how I feel about that. And he's looking at me and he's looking at the car and he's looking at, and he's judging me. And I know it. But I also know not to let that affect me. And even though I had given myself this case of black rage, I also knew to control my emotions even though it's fuming inside. Now, I remember thinking to myself, what does he know? He doesn't live here. I live here. Well, the light changed, and I took off. I went to the next light, and sure enough, I hit another red light. We've all had those days, and sure enough, here he comes really slowly, looking at my car, looking at me, and looking at the car, and it just got absolute disgust on his face. And each time this would happen, I became more and more enraged inside, and now I know what to write about, this feeling, knowing that somebody's judging you. Well, this happened to every single light, and it finally gets to the last light, and there's the freeway right there in front of me, and it turns red, and I have to stop, and here he comes. Now, this time, he pulls up next to me, and he honks his horn, and I don't want to look. I'm like, you want to just tear the steering wheel off, and I don't want to look, but I finally look over, and he honks the horn, and he goes like this. He's, you know, the universal sign for roll down your windows. And because before then, I didn't tell you this. I had rolled my windows up because I didn't want to listen to the, his music and his rattly car. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to buy into it. And he honks his horn again. He goes like that. And I thought to myself, well, you know what? There's the freeway right there. I have a nice, fast car. I'm going to let him say what he says. And then I'm going to use my words to just put him in his place. So I roll my window down and he looks at me right in the eyes and he goes, hey, man, nice car. And I go, what? And he goes, that's a beautiful car. And I go, what that's supposed to mean? And he goes, uh, I'm, you know, I just wanted to tell you, I've been looking at this thing. It's really beautiful. I love the wheels and everything. He wasn't the one that was rejecting me. It was me. It was me. 
And I remember inside feeling so, and I said to man, thank you so much. I said, you just made my day. <laughs> and I remember him looking at me like, yeah, whatever, man. And then I went on about my day. The reason I share that with you is most of the time when we're thinking about what other people are thinking about us, we are wrong. We are wrong. And so that is the second thing, the most important thing that you must do is that you must interrupt your pattern while you're in it. And when I say interrupt your pattern, I mean, snap yourself out of it when you feel that pain. And by the way, don't wait for it. Think about anything. Think about going somewhere or think about being on stage or think about presenting, thinking about you know, doing anything at all. And when that feeling comes up that goes, oh, I don't know, snap yourself out of it. Stop, shake yourself out and create what's called a scotoma. The scotoma is a blank spot on your mind. All you got to do is stand up, shake yourself out, and your mind is blank for just a moment. And all you got to do is just smile and go, it's okay. Everything's fine. Because as soon as you smile, your, your brain is going to release dopamine inside your system, and your system is going to go, what just happened before then? Let me do it again. And you will literally turn your fear of rejection into the trigger that makes you snap out of it. You do that enough times, it's, it's human physics. You do it enough times and your system will learn that, wait a minute, pain means snap out of it. Fear means snap out of it. Fear means snap out of it. And when you snap out of it, then you get to be what I call optimistic. And optimistic it doesn't just mean, you know, the, every cloud has a silver lining or anything like that. What optimism, optimistic means is that you have more options. You can see more options, but we can't see those options when we're mired in fear. So number one, you've got to snap yourself out of it. Recognize that it's just a feeling that we have, that it is primal. And again, it's not going to go away. Listen, I still go through it sometimes. You know, when it's time to, to step on stage or step on and do something like that, there's a little bit of nervousness that goes through me, but it snaps out of it. I, I snap right out of it very, very quickly. You do this enough times, and that's how you become that kind of person who what it gets replaced with is this self-appreciation. And yeah, there's a part of you that goes, you know what? I'm okay. There's a part of you that goes, you know what? Wherever I go, people love me. <laughs> and that might sound arrogant, but let me ask you, which is better? Assuming that people love you, even though they don't, by the way, not everybody's going to. How about going through life knowing that you're of value, that you have some value, that you're a good person, and all of those things that make a difference in your life? I'm here to tell you that it's a better way to go through life. It's a better way to approach life. It's a better way to live. So remember this. It is not only okay, but it is, it is part of your nature, part of you as a human being to care about what other people think about you. And I'm just here to tell you to assume that they're thinking the best. Because on the other side of that, you're going to feel better. And guess what? No, don't get me started. You start to glow with that type of, of energy and people start to respect and love you even more. And so, again, as I always say, life is always exactly what you dare to make it. And fortune favors the bold. So the trick to life is to boldly step up and dare to make your life magnificent. That's how you go further faster. I look forward to serving you again and I will see you at the top. This podcast was a production of Angel Phoenix Productions. 
Explore more episodes of this show or other great shows on the Angel Phoenix Podcast Network by visiting angelphoenix.com. The views expressed in this show do not necessarily represent those of Angel Phoenix Productions or its advertisers and may contain language that's unsuitable for younger listeners.